0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Jesse Proudman is the co-founder and CEO of Strix Leviathan, a quantitative crypto hedge fund algorithmically trading digital assets. In this conversation, we discuss quantitative trading in crypto, the lack of institutional infrastructure, why prime brokerage is so important, and the power of narratives. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jesse, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is the World Series of Trading by Bybit. The World Series of Trading is the first of its kind to bring the exhilaration of the crypto trading competition to the global stage. World Series of Trading believes in the importance of empowering traders who embody the passion and power for crypto trading. This biannual event aims to champion the spirit of competition, fair play, and cultivate camaraderie among crypto derivatives traders from around the world, with the ultimate goal of creating positive change in the crypto space. This year's prize pool is a whopping 200 Bitcoin. That's right. If you sign up and participate, you can win up to 200 Bitcoin. Sign up using the the link in the description of this episode. Our next sponsor is Trends by The Hustle. The Trends Weekly Report is something that I've started reading, and I really, really like it. You all know my rules of business. Build shit people want, never give up, avoid assholes, question assumptions, learn new ideas, and always reward ambition. There's one community that makes this easier than anywhere else. That community is called Trends. Trends teaches you how to build shit people want by giving you case studies, industry deep dives, and first looks at emerging market opportunities. Trends teaches you to never give up because they have formed a special community of thousands of entrepreneurs who help each other every step of the way. You'll avoid the assholes because that community actually gives a damn about you and your business. Trends will help you question assumptions by providing access to databases of thousands of real businesses' financials so you know the true numbers for what it takes to succeed. And Trends is the best place to learn about up-and-coming market opportunities, every market, Every week, they send out a report of emerging markets and show you exactly how you can capitalize. Guess what? Trends wants to reward your ambition too. That's why they wanna give you a two weeks of access for just $1. That's right, you didn't hear it wrong, $1. They love our podcast and they want our listeners to join their community. So right now, if you sign up for the first two weeks, you pay just $1. No brainer. Go to trends.co slash pomp. To start your $1 two-week trial. That's T-R-E-N-D-S dot C-O slash POMP for $1. Everyone's got $1. Go sign up for Trends. Two-week trial, trends.co dot slash POMP. I'll see you on the inside. All right, let's get into this episode with Jesse. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. Got Jesse here. Thanks so much for doing this, man. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. For sure. So let's just get started with uh, your background. uh, Where'd you grow up? What'd you do uh, before you got into uh, crypto?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm a Washingtonian, grew up here, uh, born in New York, but grew up in Washington. Uh, I've been lifelong entrepreneur. So started the lemonade stands when I was a kid. When I was 13, I started a web development company and kind of morphed that into what ultimately became a, a hosting company. Uh, so this is sort of before cloud computing existed you had to run servers to run websites and and i uh, so that was my business 2003 had uh, started a company called blue box which ultimately became a, a cloud computing company raised about 22 million in venture and sold that company to ibm in june of 2015. it's a great exit for the investors for for our team it was pretty exciting like we thought we were going to be a pretty influential part of the ibm cloud ecosystem and uh, Spent about a year and a half trying to integrate that product as a, as a distinguished engineer into the, the broader landscape and uh, quickly sort of realized that I was pushing a boulder up a hill every day and having it roll back down on me every night. So uh, at, at that point, uh, wanting to do something inside IBM, like I, I have a lot of respect for IBM as a company. They've been around for an incredibly long time. They've survived all kinds of technological change. Felt like I wanted to be able to try to actually help. And so I found a role at IBM Ventures and they were at the time trying to launch a blockchain focused accelerator.
0: And so I helped
1: them with the design of that. And so my job over 2017 was effectively to research the, the crypto space, become sort of the subject matter expert, which couldn't have been, there couldn't have been a better time to have that be your your focus. And it's a space I've been familiar with for quite some time. Nick Carey from blockchain.com and Eric Voorhees from Shapeshift, we all went to college together in the same like, business class. So I've watched over their shoulders over the last couple of years as they've built their businesses in this space and was fascinated. But It takes uh, a lot of intellectual bandwidth to actually dive in and understand what's happening here and didn't really have that until 17. So I spent uh, a number of months there and was instantly hooked.
0: Yeah. And so like as you're starting to do that research, just like, where do you start? Right? I think a lot of people didn't know anything about whether it's Bitcoin, crypto, uh, blockchain, whatever kind of part of the industry. Uh, but they come at it from the retail perspective, right? Is, hey, I go and I've probably heard about price movement or uh, something like that, and, and I start researching. When you're coming at it from uh, one, IBM, and then two is trying to actually create an accelerator, like where does that research begin? And maybe walk us through like what did that process actually look like?
1: Yeah, I I really wanted to just understand what the landscape looked like. Like, What were the companies? What were all the pieces? Um, And that's the hardest part, I think, for anybody getting started here because there's so much in this space. Uh, So obviously started with Bitcoin, trying to understand what the sort of the fundamental technology discovery was there that made Bitcoin um, and, and the blockchain underneath it sort of a, a distinct and unique technology. Uh, and then from there sort of branched out in, into the broader ecosystem. And 2017 was such a just absurd year in terms of number of projects, number of uh, of ICOs, number of new technologies. Uh, and so I ultimately if my became a sponge it was like any and all information I could get live, uh, podcasts blogs Twitter telegram reddit like everything I could find and I, I would just absorb on the accelerator side I think it, it was an interesting question like so many corporate accelerators are designed really to just sell sell that company's products so like Microsoft has Microsoft accelerator and the objective there is to sell startups Azure cloud that didn't seem like a super interesting or compelling initiative to me. What I wanted to do was build goodwill in the startup community for IBM, and then in turn sort of have that benefit, uh, benefit IBM down the road. And I thought IBM was in a unique position because they have all of the customers that these startups want. They're already IBM customers. And so, but these startups don't have time to go out and vet, excuse me, the, the enterprise customers don't have time to go out and vet startups. So we thought there could be this really unique opportunity to make between Startups and IBM's customers, and to go and figure out what problems those those enterprise customers were having, and find the startups that help solve them. So that was sort of the the design uh, for what we wanted to do, and to try to bring bring all that research together, plus um, sort of vet and discover all of these these IBM customer problems. Uh, that felt like an interesting product. Fortunately, the the program in Q3 of 17, there was no funding. Like the funding got cut, um, so we never actually got to launch it. But it was fun. Like either way, we got to do the research, which was, was phenomenal.
0: For sure. And so eventually you decide you're going to go and launch a fund. What was that thought process and kind of what was the impetus for uh, going on the fund side rather than uh, building another company?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So Q3 of, of 17, IBM comes back and says there's no money to launch this accelerator. They offered me a role working on, on Hyperledger, which is their private blockchain product the time, that just didn't seem like an interesting uh, initiative for me. I I was more excited with kind of what was happening on the finance side of of, uh, the space. And so I sort of concluded that I was going to leave and started to kind of look at what else was out there in the space. And so Q4 of 17, everything was on fire. Like the everything was just bananas. And the exchange space seemed really interesting to me. Uh, So I I went and reached out to Coinbase and to Bittrex and uh, a number of those folks about taking a product management role. But they could barely—I mean, they were, were they could barely keep the platforms online, let alone um, hire or, or do interviews. Like it was so wild to think back at how fast everything was moving, and so started to look at the space and, and form some conclusions uh, around applicability of algorithmic trading, which I thought was a unique way to approach this space in particular. So this was from all the research I would, had completed over the, the summer. Started to notice a few patterns. Like this is a space where there's real liquidity. Like money is flowing in and out every day, uh, but it's fractured across all of these exchanges globally. Right? There's no single place you can go and uh, and have visibility into all of the order books or all of the the volume repairs pairs that are trading. It's it's all over the place. Uh, the other thing that I found was really compelling is that all of the data is is publicly available uh, and. Data can mean a lot of things, right? You have all of the data that exists on chain. So all of the movements of capital um, within the ecosystem, that's all public. But you also have all of the trading data. So if I wanna to go to the, the NASDAQ and say, I would like a copy of every trade that occurs on NASDAQ, I will pay out the nose to get access to that data. And there's sort of a walled garden as a function of that. It's really hard to, to participate in that ecosystem. But in crypto, every exchange streams all of their, their data for free. So every time somebody buys or sells, that match is publicly available and I can collect it and I can analyze it. And so it felt like there was an opportunity to to build a a set of software that collected all of that data, normalized it into a consistent format because every exchange has its own nuanced data structures and then analyze it and look, look for patterns. And we've all sort of done this thing, you stare at these charts long enough and you can visually see patterns in the charts. And so if you can visually see patterns, you can programmatically see them. And so I started to tinker kind of nights and weekends at the end of, of Q4 to see if I could come up with a set of software that, that would do exactly that. And by the end of the year, I think it was actually three days after Bitcoin's all time high uh, in December, had something that I felt like was working and, and reached out to Sadie Rainey, my, my co-founder, and said, I've got this interesting idea. I think we should go build a company around this. Um, and so we did. We uh, we launched Strix Leviathan in January of eighteen, and the, the interesting thing here was really kind of looking at the broader landscape and, and the tooling that's available in the, in the broader landscape. I had thought, kind of coming from the outside, that there would be providers, software tools, etc., that would solve many of the problems you would need to launch an investment manager simple things like accounting tools, trade execution tools, portfolio management, risk management, like all of these pieces that you need to, to effectively run a fund vehicle felt like that would exist in the ecosystem. As we started to kind of map everything out in 18, we realized none of that existed. Like there were there were sort of piecemeal tools here or there, uh, but but none of it was there in a kind of end-to-end complete way. And so that felt like the first big hurdle. We had to go build all of that uh, to effectively operate. And so in, uh, in March, we raised some equity capital uh, from outside investors to, to build that software platform and spent much of, of 2018 kind of getting that, the groundwork built. Uh, and so first question has got to be,
0: where does the name come from, right? Strix Leviathan, which uh, I've had to pronounce over and over again so that I can now pronounce it. Uh, where does that name come from? That's not like a, a normal name that comes out of the hat, it seems.
1: Yeah, it's there's definitely some meaning behind it. So, so Strix is sort of a, an owl of the night. Uh, and Leviathan is a sea monster, sort of octopus type creature. And so if we thought about what we were trying to build with this business. This is an industry that never stops, right? Everything trades 24 by 7. And so the owl to us represented uh, something that's always watching, always listening So keeping an eye on on what's happening in the market. And then an octopus is obviously a sort of a multi-tentacle, big-brained, incredibly intelligent creature. So we wanted to kind of bring the symbolism of uh, always paying attention and being able to multitask and and respond with intelligence uh, to the market. Um, And do so in a way that that kind of causes people to ask a question. Like everything in this space is block this or chain that or... And it's all the same names, and we didn't want to kind of follow suit. We wanted to say, oh, what does Strix Leviathan mean? Why'd you pick a name? Got it. I love it. And what
0: exactly is the thesis or strategy today?
1: Yeah, great questions. So cryptocurrency is a speculative asset class in our eyes. There's fundamental value in this market, but it's not shared amongst market participants. So the reasons you believe Bitcoin are, are valuable are not the same reasons that other people believe Bitcoin are valuable. And we see that with models like stock to flow or or the halving analysis that exists. Like everybody has their own opinion. So in, in our eyes, that lends itself to really being able to trade these in a systematic, trade these markets in a systematic way. So we take all of the data we get off of all these exchanges, we run it through a whole dif- different set of filters and algorithms, and we look for patterns and trends. And we move the fund long and short, uh, based on what those, those patterns and trends say. So it's, a, it's an actively managed fund based on the, the patterns that exist in the data. Got it.
0: And so how does that um, kind of change over time as you see uh, times of very high volatility and then times of uh, almost no volatility, right? If you, I would argue over the last couple of weeks there's been uh, very little volatility. And then obviously we saw earlier this year Literally, in one day, the price dropped 50%, and then we saw a massive rally uh, off the bottom. And so kind of talk us through um, how this type of strategy interacts with those different environments and, and kind of the evolution through a, a trading year. If you will.
1: Yeah, I love to boat, but I, there's a saying in boating where it's like hours of boredom followed by moments of sheer terror. And that's absolutely what trading crypto is like. So I think a lot of, a lot of the work we've done and I think a lot of the challenge that people face is that they look at this space under the lens of time. Like, so they'll say, oh, in the last day, Bitcoin has done this, and I'll make my trading decisions based on that. Or in the last hour, the last four hours, these, these different things have happened. And that doesn't really work for exactly the reason you're talking about. Because in the course of 15 minutes, like over Mother's Day weekend, over the course of an hour, the price fell at 15 20%. And so what what we've done is spent a lot of time looking at capital flows. How does money actually move through these markets? And we've designed a set of technology that allows us to say, uh, in a given day, we expect this many uh, periods of evaluation to occur. But in a a period like March 12th, where you saw that 50% drop, we may target 12 candles in a day, but a day like March 12th, we may have printed 80 candles based on the amount of volume and capital that, that changed hands. So, our objective is how do we elongate those periods of chaos and be able to make decisions based on what's happening there? And how do we sort of shorten the, the period of low vol? And I think it works really well in these markets because by far and large, these are these are trending markets over time uh, and the reflexive markets, meaning as the price begins to move, it typically continues to move. Um, and it does that more often than not. So we do really well in periods of time where that trending behavior exists. And Periods like the last six weeks where the markets really have been low vol, they've been range-bounded, very choppy, uh, that's where we struggle. But, but our belief is sort of over the long term, our ability to kind of play those, those very big movements and benefit from those very big movements um, outweighs and, and allows us to outperform in a broader sense the, the rest of the market.
0: Got it. And, and I guess part of this, too, is you guys are obviously able to capture a lot of data and do that analysis. But then you've got to actually execute the trades um, and, and do so, I'm assuming, in in a pretty accurate, uh, high frequency way, if if you so need that. Maybe talk a little bit about the infrastructure that exists, uh, you know, kind of outside of you guys and then what you've had to build internally uh, to be able to
1: execute such a data driven strategy like this. Yeah, this is one of the biggest surprises that that I Witness coming into this space. So, we started off very early in 18 trading everything on exchange. And because everything is fractured, the liquidity on each individual exchange is is pretty slim. Like, you can't move significant amounts of money without experiencing pretty high execution costs or slippage. Uh, So, that wasn't going to work for us. So, in 2018, we pivoted from trading on exchange to pivoting via what they call OTC. So, these are other companies that effectively aggregate liquidity across multiple exchanges for you and they'll provide you a fixed price and um, and you can you can trade that way. So that those OTC providers in 2018, everything was done over Skype. Like that was the formal way to do it. You got in a Skype chat room and you said I want to buy a half a million dollars of Bitcoin or I want to buy a million dollars of Bitcoin and they gave you a price and then you went in three other chat rooms with three other OTC desks and you all asked for the same thing and everybody's giving you different prices and they're validating their prices kind of as, as the market's moving. Like it blew my mind that that was the accepted status quo. And hundreds of billions or billions of dollars move through the markets that way. Uh, and so we, that was how we traded for the first six or seven months. And then finally, towards the end of eighteen into the beginning of nineteen, we started to see a number of these providers begin to have APIs. So that meant that we could electronically connect our system into their system and get quotes uh, without having to interact with people in, in chat. Uh, but we only, there was only one or two and it's sort of in, in our business, you never really wanna have one or two counterparties. You wanna have a diverse set of people you can trade with. So we thought about, hey, maybe we'll build a chat bot that'll let like, go and talk to these people and like do the trading over Skype through, through a chat bot. And that it just didn't, it felt clunky. So we, we finally just sort of waited and eventually we got to sort of four or five different counterparties that all had, had these APIs. And now all of our electronic, our execution began electronically. So when we say we wanna go buy quarter million dollars worth of Bitcoin, the system pulls up all these streaming prices and then the trader on our team click a button and instantly lock in a, a price. And, and it's nice because it, it gives us, we know we're getting best execution across all of these different providers. We can see all the prices in real time. We can see exactly what the sort of the cost to execute is. I and mean, it also tells us a lot about what's happening in, in the market, how those prices, uh, are relative to, to what the spot price is in, in the market at any given time. But the, the interesting thing, so like that's the, that's the spot side, to so like being able to buy and sell coin. The lending side is still done all over. Uh, it's now moved to Telegram, right? But if we wanna borrow something, we're, we're back into telegramming, like we need to borrow a million dollars of the Bitcoin and like negotiating these rates and everything through uh, through chat. And so it's just, it's a funny state of affairs uh, with, with where we are. And you've seen companies like Togomi, that launched under the, the premise of trying to fix that problem. Uh, but but they never really, like we never got a full sort of true prime brokerage experience with APIs, like that never finally got launched. So it's just, it, the state of affairs is, it's, uh, it's a funny place. This industry is still so early.
0: So help me understand, like what are the missing functionalities uh, or features that uh, you would expect to see in a true crypto prime brokerage that aren't there today, but would have a significant impact or create an inflection point for you guys in the way that you would
1: want to trade. Yeah, so a lot of this also has to do with the fact that we are a, a U.S. company, right? So many people, when they want to, to go long or short, they'll go on some of these international exchanges that are unregulated in the U.S. So call it like the Bitmex or FTXs of the world, and they'll they'll trade there. We're a U.S onshore entity, investment manager. So we we have excluded ourselves from those venues. So um, when we want to short the market, we have to go and borrow coin and then sell it and then rebuy it and return the loan. So it's just logistically complicated. So what, what we need to see and what this space needs to see is a, a prime broker that allows for spot trading. So being able to buy and sell uh, traditional coin and that allows for shorting the markets so being able to facilitate all the the borrowing uh, that you need to do to, to short the market all within one platform and provide all of that with apis so that it can be done electronically and and it's missing like I think a lot of that has to do with the regulatory work that's required as uh, to serve u s customers like I think it's just that it, there's too much There's too much regulation today in the US that makes it cumbersome for those companies to go through the effort, not knowing if they're actually gonna materially see business show up and once they've they've gone through all that compliance work. So uh, like the the pieces are starting to be there and you're seeing companies kind of begin to focus on it. Certainly prime brokerage has been the hot topic over the last 60 days in this space. You've seen a number of acquisitions um, or or announcements between uh, Coinbase and uh, BitGo and Genesis. I'm um, all sort of focusing on that area, but, but there's still a lot of work to, to happen.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, too, because it feels like uh, people know that this stuff needs to exist. It's just everyone's looking around the room like, hey, who's going to build it? Uh, and some of that is time, right? And some of it is uh, the large companies will eventually add some of that. You're right, you see Coinbase kind of acquire Tagomi, um and kind of full disclosure, we were an investor there. But then you also see uh, a lot of kind of building in-house with large companies, Um, you know, especially the international ones you mentioned, but do you think that uh, the funds in the space can ultimately get their heads around trusting new startups or kind of challengers in the space? So, you know, somebody shows up uh, maybe they raise a couple million bucks and they say, hey, look, uh, we've built X, Y, or Z uh, functionality that you just described, but they don't come with uh, the insurance or the big brand name or the, you know, couple years of track record or history. Like, what does that look like from a trust standpoint with funds that are managing, you know, millions, if not hundreds
1: of millions of dollars? Yeah, it's also it's also a liquidity problem. So you've got all of the issues you described, and then you've got the liquidity problem. So anybody that's actively trading in this space, they're going to go to where the liquidity resides. And so the the startups that exist, and we've seen this, like exchanges in 2019, that was the hottest thing, and there are new exchanges all the time. And they all had different features and functions that that they felt were gonna really differentiate themselves, but none of them had liquidity. Liquidity begets liquidity, like people go where, where they can trade. Um, and so, so that's a big challenge. I, I think part of me has been, been wondering about this for the last couple of months, like I'm more concerned about where the customers are. Like the Togomi piece is a fascinating one to me because you had a, a pretty killer team and they raised $27 million in funding
0: at a pretty high valuation.
1: And um, like they built the product itself was good again, kind of lacking some of that the liquidity um, and lacking some of the, the lending side. But like if structurally the product was was pretty good. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I don't think that they saw enough revenue being walking through the door from, from customers to sort of be able to go raise that next round. And that's that's part of the problem. Like you look at this space, 2017, 2018, 2019, a lot of great teams raised a lot of money at very high valuations. And that forces sort of the next valuation, the next raise to be, uh, to be really high. And you got to have revenue to support that. And I don't, I don't know if the revenue is here yet for that many companies to, to be able to support the next round. So 2020, 2021 to me will be pretty fascinating. I think you're going to see sort of the, the cream rise to the top and um, companies like BlockFi who have been able to, to do phenomenal things with the capital they've raised and, and really grow customers, uh, like Drive Revenue, like those types of companies that they're going to do very well. But people who have sort of built either copycat businesses or, or things that don't really differentiate in a meaningful way, I think you're going to have a really hard time kind of continuing to, to fund their business. What happens there? Do they die or is there just consolidation from like an MA front? I think we're going to see both, right? I think that the really good teams, and I think Tagomi is a great example, right? There's a good team, good product. You build, You bring that inside of somebody else that has the, legs uh, to support it um, and to to help that grow, I think you'll see that type of acquisition play out. I mean, it really reminds me of the cloud computing space when I was there with the last business. Like The the teams that raised too much money, they got bought and uh, incorporated into companies like Red Hat and Cisco and uh, and sort of tried to help steer direction inside of those bigger companies. Uh, I think you're going to see the same thing here. And so companies like Fidelity, who are building their own things internally, like that's going to be great. Then the sort of the tier two banks are going to realize, okay, we're late. We're late and we don't have time to go build. How do we go pick up the teams that know what they're doing? How do we pick up the, the companies that, that have built functional products um, and kind of fill the voids that we have internally? Uh, and so this, this build versus buy question, I think is going to play out in a material way. It's just, it's just a matter of when, sort of at what point does this become such a critical need at each one of these institutions that that they realize they're late.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I guess part of this, uh, I know you've got a lot of thoughts around like the power of narratives. And so one of the narratives that you're um, talking about here is in 2017, you know, everyone's got their eye on kind of the, the horizon, but the horizon is at like a 45 degree angle or higher and everything's going up and it seems like the world's amazing. And so, people go out and they raise, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. In some cases, we saw people raise billions of dollars uh, at very high valuations. That obviously puts a lot of pressure on the, on people to, one, deliver, but also, two, when the market then uh, doesn't kind of go up forever, uh, there's the economic pressure as well. What are some of the other narratives that you guys have paid attention to um, and you think are either important for people to, uh, to be aware of or, two, you think are actually driving some of the movements in the markets, whether it's the, the kind of liquid market for crypto or the uh, the private markets?
1: Yeah, uh, narratives are really fascinating to me, and I think everybody always wants to have a, a story for why the price moved, right? And uh, and in an industry where where there is sort of that lack of shared fundamental value, uh, the price moves in our eyes because because it's reflexive. It started to move, and people kept buying it, and the and way it went, um, and then after the fact, people come and they put the, the narrative on, and so. 2019, or 2020, uh, this feels like it's been three years. 2020 has been a, a fascinating year and we've seen multiple occurrences of these. I mean, we started off uh, sort of at the beginning of the year with this notion of the halving that was scheduled for May um, and how that was gonna have significant impact on on price. We saw, uh, and, and we saw a lot of price action, positive price action in sort of Q1. Uh, we saw correlation with uh, sort of the, Arrain, uh, the missile strikes, uh, in the Middle East. We saw correlation with um, late last year in 2019, correlation with uh, what they call it the z Pub. So uh, in in China, sort of positive news in China, producing pretty material movement in, in price. Uh, but this is all happening sort of after the fact. You're putting a narrative on on a price movement that, that happened um, after it's, it's happened. The interesting thing in, in my eyes is that because crypto there are so many retail traders here. Uh, these narratives can sort of take on sort of a, a power of their own and help move price around whether or not they're, they're true or not. Uh, one of those right now that, that's pretty popular is this notion of the stock-to-flow model. Uh, stock-to-flow model is a, a model, of like a fundamental valuation model for Bitcoin that effectively uh, puts the, the price of Bitcoin at the end of the year above fifty grand uh, per coin. And so it gets people really excited, right? Everybody's like, yes, like I, I believe in this technology, the price is gonna go up because the model says it's gonna go up. Uh, and so it creates this, this really interesting challenge and, and Stock to Flow is an interesting one because the actual, you look at the theoretical uh, math that under underlying the model or, or the theory itself, like it doesn't actually stand up to, to analysis, but it's exciting. And so people share it because it's exciting and it gets everybody, uh, Fired up, it's it's getting people kind of participating in the space, and uh, so th- these narratives, like in our eyes, we try to strip all of that out. Like we think uh, those those aren't effective ways to trade this space. You know, it, it's funny. Like Travis Sarmika, guy was, was listening to that show that you guys recorded, and he was talking about when they started. There was this qualitative fund, like trying to do analysis and pick these these big macro pieces, um, and that's a big challenge because they're unpredictable. Like you you only know that that narrative powered. The, the situation after the fact. And then when they switched to kind of this quantitative systematic approach, things went really well. Like we, we absolutely agree with that. Uh, so the, these narratives become really meaningful after they've become, like after they're useless. Like it's they're just, they're good for, they're good for articles. They're good for stories. They're good for uh, sitting around the campfire and telling why, why things happen, but they don't, in our eyes, they, they really hold predictive power.
0: Yeah, you mentioned uh, some critiques of the stock to flow model and kind of how it doesn't hold up to analysis. Unpack that a little bit more, because I think a lot of people uh, they kind of hear one side of the story um, again because of the price and the excitement and all of that. Like, what, what is the other
1: side there? Yeah, so it's it's this is a really complicated one because you're you are taking a mathematical model. that's already hard to understand, uh, and you're you're trying to dissect it and explain it in a way that that people can get. I think that the easiest way to explain the summaries is to think about all of those statistical analysis that, that you can go find that are, that are sort of joke analysis, right? So you can look at divorce rates compared to purchases of margarine in Maine. Uh, and you can see that as purchases of, of margarine have increased, so have divorce rates. And so margarine must lead to divorce. Like they are unrelated variables and looking at them, you can obviously say that that's not accurate. Uh, mm-hmm. but the statistics hold true, and there, there's sort of high fit to the model. A lot of what we see with stock-to-flow sort of fits that reality. So the, the first big issue is that there's uh, a bunch of analysis using, so the idea is with stock-to-flow that scarcity is what drives value. Uh, that and, and gold is used as the example, that the amount of new gold sort of produced every year as a function of all of the gold that is in existence is so small that you can't really impact, uh, you can't flood the market, and thus uh, sort of gold keeps its value. And the argument is made that the Bitcoin is similar. That with the known emission schedule, uh, sort of the the flow, the new coins that are mined and, and minted onto the network with every block, uh, that that now at this point have, is predictable and is small, and thus we can use that to, to drive value. And the reality is that. Gold, when you look at it both in real and in, in nominal terms, so inflation adjusted or, or not, uh, the actual sort of stock-to-flow market cap value, so you take this number, this, this stock-to-flow number, and you develop a, a market, US dollar market cap calculation from it. It's had an $8 trillion range over the last 110 years. So it's not sort of this, this clean number uh, that, that you can do a statistical analysis on. And, and inflation adjusted, I think it's had a $6.5 trillion range. So like, in theory, if you're saying gold behaves this way, uh, so Bitcoin should, well, gold doesn't behave that way. So, like, there's our first problem. Uh, so, like, at, at a very high level, when we develop a, a model, we have a theory. And if the theory's wrong, it doesn't matter what the rest of the model says. Like the, the theory that underpins it is incorrect. We're now back to this weird statistical anomaly uh, with margarine and, and divorce. So that that's kind of problem number one. And then when you sort of dive into the, the rest of the model, that there's other issues around uh, sort of projecting future price using a linear regression. We, we've done a big blog post about it, and I could get you the link. Uh, we try to really explain it in, in simple terms. Uh, but but again, the challenge is people become very religious about the model. We we believe that this asset class is valuable. We think that this that Bitcoin will rise in price. Uh, we, that's why we're here, right? We all participate in this this because we think there's some distinctive characteristic about uh, this asset that sets it apart from everything else, and we want to participate in in, in, in that we want to be outside the sort of the realm of the traditional financial system. But we don't want people to get involved in this asset class for the wrong reasons. We don't want them to sort of follow a model blindly that says Bitcoin is going to be worth fifty thousand dollars at the end of the year without sort of understanding the the risks that participating in this asset class has. And that's that's our problem with that piece that it, it feels like a marketing piece designed to attract new capital into the space versus a true sort of fundamental valuation model uh, that, that has predictive power.
0: So you mentioned earlier that um, you guys watch capital flows. Uh, you've kind of articulated why the stock-to-flow model isn't one that necessarily you put a lot of weight on. What are the other signals or models that you guys do spend time looking on and uh, looking at and also believe uh, kind of carry more
1: weight? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the secret sauce behind everything that we built. Uh, and it's, you know, the, the challenging thing is that there is no one magical model that predicts price, right? Things change all the time. This is a dynamic moving industry um, and signal that may work for certain periods of time doesn't work for uh, during other periods of time. So our objective using this, this software platform that we call Octopus was to build what we call an algorithm factory. Like, how do you go from that idea uh, to testing, to validation, to production, As quickly as possible. If you look at at sort of renaissance technology, like one of the the best performing hedge funds in the history of the world, they don't have a single model that they use, the the single signal that they use. They have thousands of these signals that are just looking for little itty-bitty discrepancies in in the market. Um, And that's that's our objective. Like, how do you find each individual little thing? Because you're always eventually going to be wrong, right? At some point, the, the signal you found will no longer be valid. And so making sure that and um, you you are constantly cycling through and identifying new discoveries that's that's the key uh, and so this this octopus platform being able to to kind of interweave all of these different strategies became really important for us the other interesting thing and, and this is kind of what blows my mind about this space like most fund managers in in crypto are managing their entire portfolio in a spreadsheet i, I don't know how i don't know how they do it right there's so many little knobs and and, and variables you could turn and so you think about like a, a broader a broader fund, you first you pick like what coins are we going to trade? How many signals per coin? What's the allocation that are we going to have for each signal that fires? Like how do we how do we determine how much capital to we'll put behind everything? Like there's so many little knobs and levers and and dials that can be turned. Uh, like I, this the spreadsheet manager like it it scares me. Uh, and so to have have that all kind of built into software uh that's been a big focus for us and we think it's a pretty big differentiator would you guys ever uh take that software
0: and sell to other people like would you ever kind of productize it or is it just for internal use only
1: yeah i mean this goes back it's the the previous question that i had like are there customers there to to actually pay for it uh you know there's hundreds of funds in crypto i think they'll call it 500 plus those that are sort of that are established with meaningful AUM that, that technically have the ability to pay. So most of the funds in this space are sort of in the, the 5 to $20 million range, right? And at 5 to $20 million on a fund, you're basically covering, you break even on operational costs. And so you're not going to go look to, to spend a bunch of money on, on software, and which is why you end up with a spreadsheet. Uh, once you're above that, sort of the, the guys that are the 50 to $250 million range, and there's, there's not a lot of them, but they've already got their tools and technologies like that's already entrenched and there, there's not a lot of incentive to switch right the switching cost is high and so you're trying to effectively capture people that are that are new entrants to the space but again they don't have AUM so it's it's this really it's this chicken or the egg problem um, in, in our eyes i i think there's a bunch of other businesses that that software could power uh, things like prime brokerage things like cool liquidity and there's, there's pieces of what we've built that are valuable in different ways. So we're sort of doing some work now thinking through through that piece. Uh, but also, I mean, if that's our differentiation, we sort of we keep it to ourselves to some extent. It's one, one way to, to really be unique in this space.
0: Yeah, I love that. One of the last themes I want to talk about is this idea of comparing crypto to frontier markets. And obviously frontier technologies are all the cool, shiny, sexy things um, that people get excited about. Uh, crypto kind of fits in there sort of, but also kind of doesn't when people think of frontier markets. Like, how do you guys think about the um, overlap between those two, uh, really are what end up being marketing terms or kind of uh, descriptive terms, um, trying to describe various technologies and markets?
1: Yeah, fr- frontier markets are an interesting one for us. And we think that there's a lot of parallels to, to some extent. I think one of the challenges in frontier, multiple challenges exist in frontier markets. Uh, you know, you have limited liquidity or unpredictable liquidity in, in these assets. You have a lot of fraud and theft. You have corruption, uh, graft. Like there's there's all kinds of, of issues that exist there. And we see a lot of that in in this space. I think that's one of the challenging things about crypto that turns a lot of people off initially is that there have been so many scams. There have been so many bad actors here that it becomes pretty difficult to kind of cut through the noise and figure out. Like nobody wants to be the sucker in the room. Nobody wants to be the the guy holding the the last bag. Um, nobody wants to have their money stolen. And I think that's that's a scary proposition with this space. Uh, and and it's a scary proposition with the frontier markets. And so one of the things that that we feel is really important, and that uh, like a lot of companies have been working on, is bringing legitimacy to the space. Like how do we how do we be more transparent as an industry? How do we promote uh, how do we have less memes and we have more sort of serious conversation? Like, how do we how do we grow up a little bit in a way that begins to attract a different type of investor? Um, and it, it's sort of the, the same issue with, with frontier markets. How do you solve those liquidity problems? How do you sift through all of the the corruption and graft and theft? Uh, so those those parallels kind of map well. So for us, for from our eyes, transparency has been one of the most important things. Like we look for counterparties that we work with that are transparent. We try to be transparent. One of the things we, we built this year is this whole investor portal that allows anybody to log in and view all of their, all of their history. And, you know, we see countless funds that have been shut down by the SEC in the last year because they were straight Ponzi schemes. And, it, and they raised lots of money, right? It, it's, it's shocking and that they're able to, to pull that money in. And, and as an industry, we need to, we need to, we need to help stop that. We need to identify those, those companies when we see them. We need to, to call out the, the obvious frauds uh, and, and do more to promote this, this narrative that this is a serious industry that has lasting meaningful value and is, and is different. Uh, and that's a, it's a challenge. It's not an easy thing to do, uh, particularly in, in a space where, where theft and risk of loss is so easy.
0: Sure. What's the one thing that you've learned or your biggest takeaway uh, since you left IBM and and kind of went on this journey?
1: Yeah, I I mean, it's the classic entrepreneurial challenge, right? I think I went into this thinking this is this is going to be so easy. And I think it's it's going to it was like this notion like, oh, second business, like I know all these mistakes that I've already made. I won't make those same mistakes. It's like absolutely true. I just made different ones. So like any startup, it's just it's hard. Um, and it's it's this it's this game of grit uh, and this game of survival. Uh, and uh, for me, what was was fascinating here, like the technology side, I understand. Learning, I'm learning a whole new world on the finance side, and and, and that's part of the interesting piece. It's like keeping your brain engaged and, and learning something new. I think as an entrepreneur, that's uh, that's the name of the game. You do this because you, you're a nonstop learner. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's startups are hard and it's every day is a reminder that, uh, that you can have the highest of highs, the lowest, of lows all in the same day.
0: Can you share what, uh, what is the biggest mistake you've made that you're comfortable sharing?
1: Oh yeah. That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's been a focus issue. I think, you know, in 2018, for example, we, we had the opportunity to go build sort of a, a side, uh, like a market making endeavor, uh, and it seemed really interesting and it seemed lucrative, but it sort of took the eye off the ball of some of the other portions of our business, uh, and it was a distraction ultimately. Uh, and so, it, like that's the in a startup and in, in particularly in an early stage startup where you've got small teams, like focus is such a key element of, of what makes you survive, what makes you successful, uh, and it's it's easy to forget that. Uh, particularly when, when things are moving as quickly as they do in this space. So uh, at the end of the day, it's pick, pick the things that you can be really good at and that you can be differentiated in and focus on those and and nail them. And then once you've, once you've sort of, once you've accomplished that, then you can start to go look at the ancillary pieces, but but that focus is so key.
0: Yeah, I love that answer. Uh, Before we wrap up, I always ask everyone the same questions. Uh, The first being, what is the most
1: important book that you've ever the most important book I've ever read, I would say it's probably The, the Hard Things About Hard Things, the Horowitz book, like, particularly as for an entrepreneur, right? I think everybody that, that has started a company goes to this period of time where things are really hard and they feel so alone. And nobody ever really talks about how hard these things are. And that book I was having in the last company I mean, the last company is a story in its own right. We were we were near bankrupt two or three times in the history of the company. Pulled, like after we raised venture financing, right? So I bootstrapped the thing for nine years, and um, and then within the course of twenty four months, we're, we're near bankrupt twice, and we pulled it out of the hat and sold IBM. So like that's a success story, but it was incredibly hard. So in the midst of one of those darkest moments, being able to pick up this book and and hear uh, one of now sort of the most famous entrepreneurs. Went through all the same stuff, uh, and that, that he's human, that you're human, that these emotions and the challenges are real. Like that was sort of a, a turning point that that you're not alone uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, so from from sort of being able to continue to have that grit uh, and desire to survive, like that was really important.
0: I love that answer. What um, what do you think will happen to the Bitcoin price? You, you mentioned that. Uh, it's really hard to predict, but you ultimately think it will go up. Anything that you can share kind of in terms of the medium to long-term view that you guys hold?
1: Yeah. I mean, we don't make price predictions. That's the beauty of this business uh, and and why like, I wanted to take the emotion out of it from from day one. I thought they were, it is more painful to lose money. And that's the challenge of the space, right? You have a space where 80% drawdowns are not uncharacteristic. And it's uh, like, it's, 10 times more painful to lose money than it is to gain sort of the the same amount of money. So being able to sort of take that decision-making ability away from a human uh, and put it in the hands of an algorithm felt like a great way to sort of solve that that problem. I think in in the near term, I think there are a lot of challenges this this industry uh, will experience. I think that the having which uh, we've got sort of a sample size of two prior havings to to work from, and two prior havings where the mining industry was so fundamentally different. We didn't have industrialized mining on the way on the scale we do today during either of the prior havings. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, this is all an experiment, and so we've got a we've got a lot to figure out. Over the next six to nine months, like can the mining industry actually make profit in this in this uh, sort of new era? So I think there's a lot of, of interesting pressure there in the short run, and in the long run, I mean, we're in this really bizarre macroeconomic environment where the the Fed is, I mean, <laughs> like, like stocks trade like crypto altcoins did in 2017 right now. Like, there is no grounding in reality into, into what's happening in the traditional financial market. Uh, and so at some point, that has to come back down to earth. Um, and capital is going to get redistributed. Um, and I think because Bitcoin is this thing that sits outside the traditional finance realm, I think it is well-positioned uh, to take some of that, that capital. But uh, but who knows? Again, we're in, we're in this massive experiment. It's the, in our eyes, sort of being able to play both sides, uh, both sides of that, being prepared for for both equations, really important. For sure. Uh,
0: last question I have for you, and then you get to ask me one. Uh, it's a fun one,
1: which is aliens: believer or non-believer? I mean, I think you have to be a believer. Like we are so inf- infinitively small; like we're this little tiny dot in this vast, vast space. To think that nothing else exists out there, uh, I mean that like psychologically, that just has to feel incredibly lonely. Uh there ha- there has to be. Now the question is, why would they want to come here like <laughs> it's a tire fire right now? They kind <laughs> of be like, whoa, whoa, like we don't want to have anything to do with that. Uh but I, yeah, I I think you you have to have believed that there there's more out there. I mean, we don't even understand what's on the bottom of the ocean. Uh like we have we have so much more to explore of our own planet, let alone everything else that's out there. Uh, I,
0: I could not agree more. I could not agree more. I think that uh, you know, there's places in the world where there's literally humans who have never come in contact with other groups of people, right? I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on just here, but, uh, but, but aliens probably do exist. What uh, well, one question you have for me to uh, to finish this thing up?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're in a really interesting position. You you talk to everybody about this industry, right? And I think for, for so long, sort of 2017 was was the retail era. We had this drumbeat for a long time that institutional money was coming and that was gonna save the space. Uh, but but you're out in the field, like sort of preaching the gospel of this being a differentiated uh, asset class. Like who do you see being sort of the, the next interested party and and, and why?
0: Yeah, I,
1: I think that the, um, the cat's
0: out of the bag in terms of like what I'll call like the large asset managers. Uh, and I kind of look at it from two standpoints. One is uh, there's people who have been trading liquid markets uh, and they seek volatility and historically, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have provided incredible volatility. And so that just naturally, uh, they're interested. And these are people who normally, you know, I joke and say they don't care what the asset is, right? It's just all numbers on a screen to them. They're just looking for numbers that go up and down a lot. And the delta between that up and down is big, like they think they can make money. And so I think that whole crowd, uh, for the most part, like many of them are already in, uh, and the ones that aren't like, Hey, there's volatility here, and it's becoming "quote unquote" more legitimate, and so they're they're kind of on their way, if you will. Um, the, the big inflection point, though, I think comes from more of the institutional a, uh, asset allocators, and so this is the pensions, the endowments, the foundations, the um, uh, kind of uh, all of those types of uh, organizations, and in that world. Uh, it's still mixed, right? You've got some people who are uh, very convinced that, look, there's going to be something that happens here. There's just too many smart people going into the space and working on it. Um, and so I need to kind of position myself accordingly, whether that's give money to uh, kind of a more traditional asset manager I've worked with, like a venture capitalist or something like that. And they'll get a little bit of exposure in a fund that has all kinds of different disruptive and innovative technologies. Uh, some say, hey, look, I want to go and, and actually uh, just buy the asset myself. So how do I buy, you know, Bitcoin for my fund? Uh, some people want to allocate to crypto specific managers. Uh, and then some people just say, Hey, look, like I'm convinced that's going to be real. I just don't need to be the first person through the door. Right. I, I'm actually cool kind of being in the middle of the pack and the middle of the pack's not showing up for another, you know, two to five years. And so like, I'm just going to chill, right. I'll, yeah. I'll do my learning now and kind of let everyone else go through the door first and then I'll go. And so I think that when you look at it, like the people in that seat, any one of those four situations, they control a lot of money right? I mean, they they control literally trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, And and so naturally, you're going to see this uh, kind of flow of capital uh, on a macro basis come into this space. But also, I think that you're going to start to see the melding of the lines, right? The graying of the lines. So somebody like Square is a perfect example, where historically, that's looked like a traditional finance company or a fintech company. And so people would look at that and say, hey, I want that in my public equity portfolio. I want it, you know, uh, maybe my venture capitalist made an early investment in it, whatever. Well, now, all of a sudden, they've got a pretty big Bitcoin business, right? And so, like, does that go in the crypto bucket? Does it not, right? How do you think about that? Who, which manager would you expect to have made an investment in the private markets? Would it have been a crypto business? Well, probably not because they didn't have crypto, right? It's, you would have expected your fintech uh, venture capitalists to do it. But in the future, we actually may start to see companies that aren't so black and white, right? You actually get a company that you could have your fintech VC investing in. You could also have... Um, let's say you're a crypto investor investing in And then you might also even maybe have like a credit manager who's participating in some form, you know, that's not equity based as well. And so I think that uh, that's the conversation that's happening kind of behind closed doors at the uh, kind of institutional level. It's just like, how do I think about this? What bucket does it go in? And if I am a believer that there's going to be value created here, like who in my portfolio of managers can get me that exposure? Uh, and I think the people who end up uh, kind of being early, right? Doesn't mean you got to be first, but the people who are early obviously get most of the returns, or, or kind of a, a higher opportunity for returns, because uh, over time we'll get commoditized, just like every other asset has. It just may happen
1: in you know ten or twenty years. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, I saw uh, was it that there was a gigantic pension fund that was down eleven percent in Q one, and we start to think about those types of returns. Like that's not. And they'll probably have made it all back in Q2 based on how the markets have played out. But They'll be up. They'll be up right. on the first half of the year. Right. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, beginning to think about like, okay, if, if the traditional markets have lost sort of all, all grounding, like maybe we can begin to look at other things as well. It's a fascinating question. For sure. Jesse, listen, I really appreciate you
0: taking so much time to do this. Where, uh, where can we send people uh, to find you or Strix
1: Levi- Leviathan on, uh, on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. So you can learn more to, about the Strix business at Strix, S-T-R-I-X fund, F-U-N-D.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jesse Proudman, just my name.
0: Awesome, man. Listen, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, you are on the uh, the cutting edge of uh, actually true quantitative trading um, and investing. And I think that more and more people will, uh, will eventually realize that removing the emotion uh, out of the markets and out of the decision-making ends up... Uh, being quite a uh, quite a time tested strategy, if
1: you will. That's what we think. We'll see how it plays out. We're awesome, man. We'll we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do this again. Thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate it, mate. Thank you.